The Bible is very clear that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. They're on display through what he has made. And if that is true, how appropriate that as we see God's creation, we see what he's done, that our response is worship. If creation is going to worship God, so will you, so will I, so will we. What a great song. Let's go to Psalm 33 together. Psalm 33. And we're going to look at God's call for us to praise and then why we praise. Let's read the first three verses. The psalmist says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on a ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. The first thing I want you to notice there in verse 1, it says, It is fitting for the upright to praise the Lord. Fitting. And isn't it? As a finite being, someone so small like you and me, as we stand before an infinite, all-powerful God, how fitting, how appropriate. It just makes sense that we live a life of worship that is a right response to who God is and who we are. The next thing I want you to notice is that throughout those couple verses, the psalmist calls us to praise. He calls us to praise. He says, sing joyfully, praise the Lord. Make music, sing to him, play skillfully, shout for joy. The psalmist is calling us to praise. He's calling others to join him in praising God. You and I, as we spend time in God's presence and we get to know him better and we see his goodness, his grace, his loving kindness, his mercy, his wonder, his beauty, isn't there a part of you that thinks about those you love those you care about, those who are in your life, where you say, I want them to experience this. I want them to know this God. So in the same way the psalmist calls us to join him in praise, I think it's something we should be thinking about every week. We don't just worship on Sunday mornings, but this is a big part of our worship. So even this week, as you're thinking about the people in your life, think about how you can call them to join you in praise. In Psalm 66, verse 5 He says, come and see the works of God. That's something we can say in our own words to the people we work with, to the people in our families, to our friends. Come and see what God is doing. Come and see what he is like. Would you like to come with me to church on Sunday morning? I want you to see something else, too. As the psalmist is talking about praise, the mind is involved, okay? And we're going to talk about that. That's consistent. That's always true. The mind is always involved. Our mind is overwhelmed all the time with the infinite reality of who God is, what he's like, and all that he's done. But not only is the mind involved, right from the beginning, the psalmist says, sing joyfully, right? Joyfully. The heart is also involved. As the mind gets flooded with the reality of God, it floods into our heart, which becomes full, is overwhelmed with the reality of who God is. God created you that way. He gave you a mind to think through things, to reason, but then he gave you a heart to feel and to respond. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 33, God's talking to his people, and the people are doing the right things. They're even saying the right things. It says that they're coming to God with open hands of prayer, and they're making multiple prayers to God. But God says to them, 
Though your words honor me, your hearts are far from me. God has never designed you to be a dichotomy of your mind and your heart. He's called us to function together. So as we spend time in God's presence, it is reasonable that your heart sometimes becomes overwhelmed with who you're standing in front of. As you think about who he is and what he's done, it is totally fine if there's an emotional response. If you know me pretty well, I'm never going to be an advocate for emotionalism. Let's just all cry just because we like to cry. Like, that's not me. But biblically, I'm forced to deal with the reality that God has called my heart to be a part of worship. And if my heart is not a part of worship, maybe there's something wrong with my heart. So the psalmist says, sing joyfully, your heart is to be involved. Let's go to the end of chapter of verse three. He says, shout for joy. I was thinking about not even talking about this because this isn't easy. Shout for joy. Your body even responds to some extent in worship. Your mind is full, your heart is overwhelmed, and sometimes your body just responds. Some of you can be really awkward, so don't do that, but your body starts to respond in worship. So it's fourth quarter, your team, okay, your team is down, but your team scores a touchdown. Do you have to think through, well, maybe I should pump my arm. Maybe I should shout and clap. There's no thought. It happens, your body just shouts, go Bucks, or go Mountaineers. I mean, your body just shouts, you know, for your team. It just happens. Your body responds. When you're sitting there and you look to the left and there's a huge hairy spider on your shoulder, you don't sit and think, well, maybe I should brush that, that spider off my shoulder. Your body just responds. You hit it, you jump, you move. Some of you scream like a little girl. I would never, but some of you scream like your body just responds. How much more so when you and I, our puny little selves, walk into the reality of who God is in his infinite nature, his unfailing love, his overwhelming presence at times don't have a mind response, a heart response, and even sometimes a bodily response. It might look like this. It might look like this. It might not look like anything. It might just be a tear that rolls down your face. But I want you to know this is a safe place to be all in when you worship God, to be all in. If you start dancing, get too awkward, I might say something to you, but it's okay for you to let your whole body respond to the beauty, the majesty, and the reality of who God is. It's appropriate, the psalmist says so. Shouting is part of a physical response to the beauty, amazing nature of who God is. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse eight, oh, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Like, we're involved with God. We taste and we see who God is. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. So as we go a little bit farther into the psalm, we talk about why we praise God. We reference some of the things we talked about in the introduction. I talked about those four things, those four responses, those things that cause us to praise. The word of God and the works of God are two of those things, and the psalm here brings that up. Verses four through seven. Let's read them together. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all that he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Don't miss that. The earth is full. It's teeming with God's unfailing love. If you poke the earth somewhere, you know what it oozes? God's unfailing love. No matter what rock you turn over, whatever tree you climb, whatever animal you look at, God's unfailing love is on display. The earth is full of it. 
Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry hosts, by the breath of his mouth, he gathers the waters of the seas into jars. And then the psalm continues, but that's all we'll have time for. Uh, So what it starts to do is it starts by magnifying God's word. And we're called to respond in praise because of God's word. Again, God's word, whatever it's described as, is a description not just of God's word, but of God himself. So if we were to turn together to Psalm 19, you don't need to, there's some descriptions given of God's word, and these descriptions are also true of God himself. So listen to these descriptions and realize they're describing both the word of God and the quality and nature of God at the same time. It is, he is, perfect, clean. He restores the soul. He is true. He is sure. He endures forever. He is right He rejoices the heart. He's more desirable than gold. He is sweeter than honey. Therefore, the word of God always calls us to praise our God. The second thing we see there in that psalm is his works. God's works also reflect the character of God, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice, and his love. First of all, we see his faithfulness. Now, we see his faithfulness not just in the creation of all things, but also in the preservation, the maintaining, the holding together of all that he has created. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, 16, 17, talks about Jesus and his involvement in creation. It talks about the fact that he holds all things together. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he sustains all things by the word of his power. Jesus is holding all things together. Is that significant? Absolutely. Because we know that, we know that there is no galaxy that's kind of drifting out of place. There's no atom, there's no molecule that isn't exactly where God wants it to be at any moment of any day from when it was created to the moment when creation ends. He's in control of all of it, always, all the time. Why can you sleep at night? Because Jesus holds everything together. If you weren't sure of that, you would stop sleeping at night. What if tomorrow gravity stopped working? You go to put your foot out of the bed and you hit the ceiling. That'd be a negative experience. The only reason why that doesn't happen is because Jesus is sustaining and maintaining and holding all things together. Jesus is why you can schedule your life. Jesus is the reason why the sun sets and the sun rises every morning. It's why the earth continues to revolve on its axis. Jesus is maintaining, holding, and sustaining all things at all time. He's preserving his creation. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So my suggestion is to notice it. Notice it. We take it for granted. If the earth is full of his loving kindness, notice that, and notice that he continues to preserve that same creation. We're told that the earth displays God's loving kindness. It's full of God's loving kindness. It's on display. It's communicating how loving and how awesome God is. The beauty, the details, and the great wonders, all those things were made for us. For when we see those things, we get to enjoy them, and we also get to reflect on who God is and what he's like. Both things are true from God's creation. That's why we picked that song to sing, because it reminds us of that and that awesome opportunity to respond like creation does. The heavens preach God's power. Their hosts preach God's creativity. The waters, they preach his wisdom. They preach his intentionality. They preach his ability to design. 
How many of you have seen that show, Planet Earth? Three of you, you're lying. How many of you have seen Planet Earth? Okay, a lot of you, that's what I thought. People are kind of obsessed with that show. They've made tons of them. So my family and I have watched Planet Earth 1. We've watched Planet Earth 2. We haven't watched, there's one like Under the Ocean. There's one about people groups. But one of the things I love about Planet Earth is just how it shows image after image, video after video of all that God has made. Now, if you listen to the commentator, they give credit not to God, but to chance and the random shuffling of matter. Like, that's where the credit goes. So here's this guy telling you, as you're watching these beautiful, amazing things that are preaching God's glory, he's saying, like, how the ecosystem just happened to come together the way that it did. This thing just happens to be beautiful the way that it is. His voice throughout the entirety of the program gets smaller and smaller and smaller because the images that you're seeing are preaching louder and louder and louder. Look at the one who made this. Is he not beautiful? Is his design not amazing? Our response from what we see gets louder and we're amazed, especially in comparison to that little voice that goes lower and lower and lower. Accident, impossible. By chance, impossible. Clearly, there's a designer who's beautiful, who's all-wise, whose loving-kindness is on display. So I like that show. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it. Um, we also sometimes forget to see God's loving-kindness in the little things. We often call this, in a theology class, common grace. There's things that God does in ways where he displays his love that everybody gets to enjoy. Whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, whether you love God or you hate God, it doesn't matter. There's some things that he's created that you just get to enjoy no matter what. A couple weeks ago, we were at the beach. I mean, the beach is awesome. Everyone's playing in the waves. You're playing in the sand. You're enjoying one another. You're enjoying the sun and the breeze. Because in God's common grace, he made a beautiful creation that you can enjoy. So as you look down the beach, everyone's not praying. As you look down the beach, not everyone knows who God is. But everyone who goes into those waters, who's sitting on the sand, is enjoying what God made for them to enjoy. And that does reflect his loving kindness every moment of every day. But we just forget to enjoy it. We forget to notice it. I understand why the person who doesn't know God doesn't notice it. But sometimes even we who love God forget to notice it. How about other little things like taste, smell? Think about your favorite meal, lasagna, right? Steak, pan of brownies. So as you're sitting there thinking about those things, there's a smell that comes to your mind. You start thinking about the texture and there's incredible taste that goes along with it. Creation, food, the way God designed you is so that you can enjoy that. That reflects on him. It would have been totally fair if God just created a bunch of big pumps and put them all around the world and it pumped out gruel. Tasteless, odorless gruel. Everybody took their bowl, filled it up with gruel, had three of those a day. That would have been fair. That would have been gracious. God doesn't owe it to you to feed you. Is it by his grace that you have food in plenty? It's even more grace, even more kind, even more loving that the food he does give you is amazing, okay? All of us struggle with our weight on and off because it's so amazing. So God's common grace, the little things, remind us of his loving kindness. Uh, music, art, human physiology. Spend time with a doctor sometime and have them describe to you the way an organ works 
or look through their telescope and see how a cell is functioning. Whether you're looking through a microscope or you're looking through a telescope, both of those things are megaphones for the glory of God. They shout his loving kindness. They shout his goodness. They shout how wonderful he is. So both of those things, whether you're looking to see something that's very small or you're looking off in the distance at a galaxy that no one's ever seen, regardless, both things shout of the glory, the wonder, and the beauty of your God who created all of those things. So my hope, my goal for you is that you don't let those things just pass you by. Slow down. Notice the beauty that is all around you. So as we ask the question, how much does God love me? This much. Everything you see, everything that's been created is displaying and showing and communicating God's love for you. So right now we're in the Old Testament. We're looking at what the Psalms of Praise tell us about God and how we respond to God in different ways based upon what we learn from him. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, and we studied this in the book of Luke, he hung out with two disciples who didn't know who he was. So he took some time. He started opening up the Old Testament. It says he went through the book of Moses. He went through the prophets and all of scripture in the Old Testament and showed them where he was in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards a coming Messiah. Everything is saying he's coming. That is the heartbeat behind everything in the Old Testament. It just thumps and it thumps of the coming of a Messiah. So even these psalms of praise where we worship God because of his words, because of his works, because of his character, because of his presence, those things are all pointing towards one who is to come. They're pointing towards a Messiah. So as we look Back at Psalm 19, and we think about those descriptions of the Word of God that reflects on who God is, they ultimately reflect on Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh. The Bible says in Hebrews, God spoke to us in various ways, but in the last days, which are these days, Jesus spoke to us in Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is clean. Jesus restores the soul. Jesus is true. Jesus is sure. Jesus endures forever. Jesus is right. Jesus rejoices the heart. Jesus is more desirable than gold. Jesus is sweeter than honey. The work of the cross, so Jesus is reflected as the ultimate show of the word of God. God created all things. It was an amazing work. But when an all-powerful being who knows all things creates everything, it still takes very little effort. He wasn't tired when he was done. Even though he rested on the seventh day, it wasn't because he was tired. But to watch his son take on flesh, die on the cross in our place, and God's wrath pours onto his son, that is hard. The cross, what Jesus accomplished there for us, is the greatest of all works of God. So creation begins to communicate a little bit about the loving kindness of God. We get pictures of his goodness and greatness, but then when we focus in on the cross, it's on display. Every area where we were a little unclear is now screaming with clarity. On the cross, we see God's holiness, his character, which was something that we praised him for in the Psalms, we now praise him for because of what we see in the cross, his holiness on display and his loving kindness. His justice 
and his grace. His wrath and his mercy both meet perfectly in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. God's presence through Jesus is now with us. So all four aspects of what we've learned from the Psalms of praise are found completely and fully in Jesus. So now as I walk to the foot of the cross, as you walk to the foot of the cross, there's a response. The Psalms have taught us that we respond to these realities. At the foot of the cross, we stand there and our mind is overwhelmed with everything that's coming at us. Is he really this holy? Is he really this loving? How can he be this good? How can there be so much wrath and so much grace at the same time? So what happens? My heart starts to fill. My heart's a little bit overwhelmed with the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. It's amazing. I lose words. My brain can't put together the right words to articulate in a way that communicates all that Jesus did for me. So sometimes my heart just sits and I'm overwhelmed. So possibly my body might even respond. Or I'm just so thankful for what the Lord has done. My eyes may fill with tears. Same with you. As you grow in your faith and you understand who Jesus is more and more and more, you will respond with more depth of worship, more depth of praise. Your mind will continue to be more overwhelmed. Your heart will be even more full. And even your body might not be able to help but responding to how awesome Jesus is. As Christians, the Psalms of praise point us to the feet of Jesus. And at the feet of Jesus, we spend a lifetime of worship and praise in response to who he is. Praise be to God. So, God's words point us to worship. God's works point us to worship. Society, the enemy, even our own sinful hearts struggle with that. So what's happening is God's word is under attack. People call it fables. People say you can't trust God's word. When it comes to God's works, like even that Planet Earth show, even though it's displaying God's beauty, it's proclaiming his goodness, it's showing us his loving kindness, the world says, no, this was all an accident. It just came to be this way. And science is trying to rob us of our faith. Science is trying to rob the Lord of worship. So Brian Plants is going to come up. We're going to continue to make this service different than normal. Brian Plants is going to come up, and he's been studying for years to try to fight against God's glory being robbed. He will argue for us, and he's going to show us how science doesn't point us to a God who can't be trusted. It doesn't take the Bible and drag it through the mud. Rather, there's lots of aspects of science and what we've learned that points to the reality that God made all things. So Brian's going to join us here. And I'm going to ask him some questions. We're going to do an interview format. Have you studied? Are you ready for this? You're a good preacher. You're very kind. Um, So when Brian first called, when we first talked to Brian... We were thinking about this. Uh, He told me he has 2,500 slides. So Monday we talked. I told him, you have to cut that back a little bit. Monday we talked. He said, Mike, I'm down to 177 slides. I said, brother, you're not getting this, are you? Like, we're going to be up here for 15, 10 to 15 minutes. But we cut it back, right? It was hard work. So just so you know, all the things that he tells you are going to be amazing, but all the things he's not telling you breaks his heart because that is hard to not tell you everything that he's excited about. Uh, so, Brian, my first question is this. Things like the Grand Canyon, 
the dating of rocks, Arctic layers of ice, all these things, we're told, seem to point to an earth that has existed for hundreds of millions of years, and it seems like it can't coordinate with Scripture. Is that true? <clears throat> we should have a slide pop up here in a second. Hopefully. That'll, there, there we go. It is. Okay, good. So that's the Grand Canyon, and uh, you can't look at that and not be amazed. I mean, that, that, that just fires you up. You're firing me up, but this, this fires me up. And uh, Jews and Christians for thousands of years, their understanding of the world around them was that things like this or the, the layers or the, the, the environment was a result of Noah's flood. And only in the last uh, 250 years or so have geologists or geology uh, hinted towards uh, a hypothesis that slow gradual change has caused this. Uh, you know, Second Peter actually, Second Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter uh, predicted, he prophesied that in the last days scoffers would come and deny that there was a flood. And so when you look at the Grand Canyon and other formations, is that a lot of time and a little bit of water or a little time and a whole lot of water? So that's a question. To answer, uh, to get some insight on how to answer that question, a lot of people look at Mount St. Helens. And so if you recall, in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. Uh, the top one-third of the mountain blew off. That's before. It was a resort place. People would go and water ski at the base of it and hike. And then uh, an explosion occurred. And that's, that second picture is today. That, that's from 12 miles away, Johnson Observatory. In May 18, 1980, the eruption occurred. And it was equivalent. The equivalent amount of energy is 20,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. So imagine that. Psalm 104 says uh, that the Lord touches the mountains and they tremble. And they sure did on that day. Um, that's an equivalent amount of power as an atomic bomb every second for nine straight hours. I mean, just imagine that. Uh, the, the little fine layers that you see in the bottom right were actually, uh, they, they saw them on satellite. They were laid down in less than four hours. Three weeks later on June 12th, there was what's called a pyroclastic flow, which means magma and, and ice and rock shot down the mountain. That was a big event. And then about two years later, on March 19, 1982, there was a mud flow. There was a debris dam up at the top of the mountain, and it came shooting down the mountain. And so these three events uh, were observed. So this is like a scientific laboratory of what, what geology can do quickly. Speed is the, is the question. There's a lady at the bottom right of that picture, and she's probably five feet tall or so. And those demarcations, those white lines that you see, separate those three events that all occurred within two years. In other words, the May 18th eruption, the, the bottom third of that was laid down in four hours. Then the middle section was the pyroclastic flow. And then the top layers was the mud flow. So we got 40 to 50 feet of layers in less than two years. And actually there are some areas that are 400 feet. Also, we can look at a canyon that was cut 140 feet deep in nine hours from that mud flow that was observed. In nine hours, 140 feet deep in the North Fork of the Tuttle River. That's kind of interesting because it's actually shaped like the Grand Canyon. It has side canyons. It, 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 it's shaped like the Grand Canyon. It's just 140th the size. So it could be a possible explanation. Uh, this is just one little volcano. Imagine if you had thousands of volcanoes during a year-long global flood. What could happen? Uh, there's, there's, there's many pictures we could go through, but this is an interesting one. Uh, you have three different trees that are growing through rock layers, hundreds of millions of years of rock layers, supposedly hundreds of millions of years. So the tree starts to grow the first layer, and then it doesn't decay over the course of 100 million years. How, how, what, what log do you sit on that doesn't decay? 
That, that's an indication of rapid burial, say, in a, in a global flood. Uh, so rock layers can confirm the Bible. Um, but moving on, uh, some of you uh, may have been around during World War II era. There, there was a, a fighter uh, squadron that landed emergently in Greenland. It's called the Lost Squadron. And uh, there were two B-17 bombers and six fighter jets that had to make an emergency landing. They were socked in with fog. All the pilots were rescued. They know exactly where the planes landed. And that had occurred in 1942. In 1988, if you look at the slide, in 1988, a group went back to salvage some of those planes. They were three miles away, and they were 75 meters deeper in the ice. This is in Greenland, okay? So remember the date, 1942 to 1988 is 46 years. So in 46 years, there were 75 meters of ice deposited in Greenland on those planes. Interestingly, they dug the planes up, and they actually, about 10 years ago, were flying at an airfield in Kentucky. So that's kind of amazing. But 46 years, 75 meters. If you look at the climatologist data, where we get a lot of our climate data, uh, in Greenland and Antarctica are the deepest cores that have been drilled. And in Greenland, uh, the, the estimated age of the Earth has to be at least 110,000 years by, by those ice layers in Greenland, which is the same place where those planes landed. The deepest cores on Earth, the Russians and the French dug a, a 4,000 meter deep, that's two and a half miles, core of ice in Antarctica. And they estimate the Earth is at least 900,000 years old just from that. But remember this, that 4,000 meters deep was the deepest ice core. So if we do some simple math and we say Antarctica is 4,000 meters deep, and I'm going to play a little trick on you here. If I'm not a climatologist, I'm going to make an assumption. That's what you do with origin science. You have to make an assumption. Assuming that the rate of ice formation is somewhat the same between Greenland and Antarctica. Maybe it's not, but let's make that assumption. Let's take the ratio of 46 years, 75 meters of ice, multiplied by 4,000 meters, and that comes out to 2,400 years. The flood was 4,500 years ago. So that collapses 900,000 years into a biblical time frame of only 2,500 years. So ice layers can actually confirm the Bible. Wow. So things that we were told prove the Bible wrong may actually confirm some of what the Bible tells us. That's helpful. Second question. So the Bible says that God created one man and one woman. But when I look around, there's lots of colors, there's lots of shapes. Uh, how in the world did all that happen through one man and one woman? Doesn't that kind of prove that the Bible is fable? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I hope not. Um, so here's a picture of Adam and Eve, and uh, they were the, the first parents. And we have many... It's a good-looking couple. Yes, they're middle brown skin. Most of the world is middle brown skin, by the way. And just to make a point, if you go to the cardiologist and he and he does something to you, your heart is on the left side of your chest. I don't care what your skin color is. If you have surgery and they cut you open, your blood is the same red color blood as everybody else's. So why do we make such a big deal about skin color? I don't know. It's, it's, it's silly, really. But our, our progenitor parents, Adam and Eve, were probably middle brown skin with the genetics inside of their bodies to make all the different skin colors we see in just one or two generations. And you say, well, how is that possible? See those little A's and big A's and big B's and little B's? Go back to biology in your genetics, and we got a click here. There we go. That's called a Punnett square. It's very simple. It's much more complicated. But remember, there's mother's genes and father's genes, and you get big bees and little bees, and they mix together, and you get different eye colors and hair colors. Skin is a little bit more complicated. Same idea, but uh, you can have middle brown skin with a with a heterozygosity in your inside your genes that can make light skin and dark skin. You say, well, that's nice, but 
you know, that's, shouldn't that take a long time? The point here is how fast can it happen? And so these little girls uh, are twin sisters. Twin sisters. Their mom and dad both had middle brown skin. But inside the genetics of mom and dad, just like Adam and Eve, were the ingredients to make those two little girls. And you say, well, that's, that's interesting. Look at them today. That's in one generation. Those are twin sisters. So could God have done it with Adam and Eve? Certainly, yes. So all people can come from one couple. Wow. So I haven't stumped you so far. So the next one, we're going to throw out dinosaurs. Everyone likes talking about dinosaurs. So what do we do with dinosaurs? Do they disprove the Bible? Can they fit into the Bible? Or do they just clearly disprove everything? Should we just go home? Are we done? I love dinosaurs too. So uh, why is dinosaur, the word dinosaur not in your Bible? Well, the word dinosaur wasn't invented until 1841 by Sir Richard Owen. Uh, the King James Version was written in 1611, so it's not in that one. The word dinosaur hadn't been invented yet. Um, but the word tannin is the Hebrew word that's translated dragon in some of the older versions. What does tannin mean? We don't know. The Hebrew folks wrote tannin. That's a, that's a foreign word to us. Some people translate it as dragon. If you go to Job, you may not be able to read that, but in Job chapter 40, Job is talking to God. And actually, God is talking to Job and saying, hey, Job, where were you when I made all these great animals, animals that Job would have seen? He talks about this animal called a behemoth, which we don't know what a behemoth is. But it, it ate grass like an ox, Job chapter 40, and it had a tail like a cedar. The, the song we just sang talked about cedar trees. The cedars of Lebanon were very big trees. This animal had a tail like a tree, okay? Uh, your footnotes in some of your Bibles will say maybe that's an elephant or hippopotamus. So let's just kind of look at that. So those don't look like trees. But there is an animal that does have a tail like a tree, and it's in our museums. And there are actually cave drawings. What other data? What I'm saying is that I believe that humans, actually some humans, saw dinosaurs. How do they draw pictures in caves before the bones were even dug up? This is hundreds of years before the bones were dug up. This is in Utah, Kachina Bridges Monument. How, how do you just happen to guess at that American Indians centuries ago? How do they draw that animal? It looks just like the real one. That could be a pterodactyl. I mean, there's, there's many examples of this. This is just data points. Uh, watch this video. Do I click? Put some fragments of the bone in acid to dissolve away the outermost layer of mineral. But the acid worked too fast and all the mineral dissolved away. Being a fossil, there should have been nothing left, but there was, and it was elastic, like living tissue. This is the piece. <gasps> no. She showed us video she took under the microscope. That's really what happened? Yes. That's the dinosaur yeah. bone? Without mineral now. That's what was left. It looked like the soft tissue she would have expected to find if it had been modern bone. This was impossible. This bone was 68 million years old. So you see this, and you think, what? You I see, didn't you want say, to tell anybody. <laughs> you'd be ridiculed, yes. right? And so I, I said to my technician, OK, do it again. I don't believe it. And yet, in sample after sample, they were there, things that looked suspiciously like flexible, transparent blood vessels. She finally mustered the courage to tell Jack. She said she dissolved the bone away, and there were blood vessels. And you know, I was like, shocked. 
How could that be? How could that be? That's right. The things Mary was finding inside dinosaur bones, look at that, blood vessels, and even what seemed to be intact cells, pose a radical challenge to the existing rules of science, that organic material can't possibly survive even a million years, let alone 68 million. Neat, huh? They don't tell you that all the time. I was amazed that was actually on 60 Minutes. Um, experimental data, good science, has shown that DNA can't last more than a few thousand years, certainly not millions of years. So there's been ongoing research of this. There are many examples of this. But Dr. Schweitzer, who's an atheist, she's a paleontologist, she's an evolutionist, she does not abandon her worldview. Many, many others don't. But some of us who, who are trying to understand the Bible and, and realize that's our foundation, this does not mean that dinosaurs disprove the Bible. I mean, there's a T-Rex femur that's supposed to be that old, and it has soft tissue that looks like yours does. I mean, that's amazing. How do they explain that? They don't have an answer. Dinosaurs do not disprove the Bible. Awesome. <clears throat> so that was 15 minutes. If we wanted to, we just set up some campfires, and we sit here for like the for the entire week, and Brian could go through all his slides. There's so much that he has that he could present to you and show you, but we can't do that all today. Uh, but we're going to try to set up additional opportunities and situations where you get to hear more from Brian in the near future. So we're going we're gonna to make that happen. What I heard Brian say, if I'm going to sum that up, even though creation is screaming about the glory and the reality of its maker, the world is saying, don't listen. Don't listen. Here's a reason. The world is going to lose that fight. Because creation will not stop preaching. The display of loving kindness will not end. As we sing this next song, it's a new song. Uh, I'd love for you to stand with me. Uh, it's going to sing about how God's creation, how his faithfulness, how his loving kindness affects us each and every day. So please stand up and let's worship.